So during the right before the pandemic, I had my son and I had him here in Kenya. Um, and this is tangentially related to COVID, but I promise I'll bring it back. Um, and when I was in the U.S., I, the first five months of our pregnancy was, was in the U.S., um, I was a high-risk pregnancy. So I had fibroids and they were like, you're probably gonna have to have a C-section when this baby comes. And I was like, okay, cool. Had to have like a million ultrasounds. Every time I had a checkup, there was an ultrasound. I came here and they were like, oh yeah, fibroids, cool. Everybody got fibroids. Let's yeah. <laughs> keep it <laughs> moving. Right. Keep it moving, you're not special. Yeah. <laughs> so I was like, I'm like, to my doctor, I was like, no, really, like I have, like you should look at them. And she was like, no, like, you will be fine. We will deliver this baby, like the end. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Kenyan medical professionals. Yes. <laughs> yes. This is Salam and Hello, where stories of joy and justice vibrate with the rhythm of Africa and the diaspora. Salam and hello everyone. My name is Lily Bakala Piper and welcome to our first live event here in Nairobi of Salam and Hello. Where are my auditions, guys? Thank you, thank you. <laughs> I want to hear the Sudanese one. I know there's at least one. There it is, there it is. <laughs> welcome, welcome, welcome to our first live show of the year. We are so thrilled to have you with us. Salam and hello to everybody who's also joining us online. I don't know how it works, but somehow we're also streaming live as well. So I have to say hello to my parents, Imma Abba. Thank you for joining us early over there in Charlotte, North Carolina, and loved ones here far, and also not yet known, but also loved friends who are joining us online. We are thrilled to have you here today. If you've been following the show, you know that we are all about joy and justice from Africa and the diaspora. That is what we try and live by when we bring you stories. And so tonight's conversation is no exception to that. I am just delighted to have a long time friend join me today whose resume and contributions both to our Nairobi community but also beyond are just extraordinary. So let me tell you a little bit about Dr. Ijioma Kola. Dr. Kola is a historian of public health whose research broadly examines historical, social, and cultural understandings of health and disease in African and African-American communities. She has a PhD in social medical sciences from Columbia no, no, nothing, guys, for the PhD from Columbia? Hello? Okay, yes, thank you. Like we said, flowers. <laughs> she also has a master's in the same discipline, and she is a 2012 cum laude graduate of Harvard with a hard H <laughs> university. But that's not where her work and her academia and her contributions end. She's also working on a book called I Can't Breathe, Racism and the Rise of Asthma in Black Urban America. And as the mother of asthmatics, I will be the first to buy that book, such an important contribution to the scholarship. Her book will be an intellectual history of medical and cultural perceptions of race and asthma in the 19th and 20th century in the United States. Ijeoma is also a social impact entrepreneur. She is the founder and executive director of Cohort Sisters, an organization dedicated to ensuring that more black women and non-binary people have access, resources, support, mentorship as they get their doctoral work um, you know, going and as they complete it. 
Her work through Cohort Sisters centers black women and non-binary scholars. They, and, uh, throughout their work, they um, do global outreach. They host networking and scholarly events. One of the events that I saw on your page that I loved was, um, this degree won't break my soul. That I really felt that. <laughs> that is the kind of work that Dr. Kola is doing. Um, and perhaps some of you um, know her through the work that she did in tandem with her scholarly work. I was talking to her before thinking that she kind of had seasons. No, she's been doing these things in tandem. And for 12 and a half years, she was a content creator and influencer, over 125,000 followers on Instagram. I hope all of you are gonna follow me now as well. Um, and she's worked with major brands, Emirates, Best Buy, Staples, Fitbit. Those are some big brands, I know, right? Fitbit, if you're watching. Tafadali. So, um, but she's, she's left that world behind and is focusing her efforts and her energy in a little bit of a different direction. So we're gonna talk about that as well today. And in addition, she's also a professor of history at University of Notre Dame in the United States, where she is inspiring young minds. Yes, give it up. <laughs> inspiring young minds and mentoring the next generation of what we hope will be thoughtful, dedicated, justice-oriented thinkers, leaders, and members of our global community. So that's just what she does, and she's also a mom. She's also a couple other things, but Ijeoma Karibusana, I'm so delighted that you're here. So Ijeoma, I've read out your bio. You have an extensive library of work that you've done. When you meet somebody new, where do you start? How do you introduce yourself? Ah, great question. So I always start with my name because Ijeoma means safe journey in Igbo, which is a Nigerian language. I am Nigerian, I am Igbo, first and you foremost. You see how it took her 10 seconds to get to that she's Nigerian? <laughs> Uh, yeah, this is important. It is it's important. really a it core is. part yes. of who I am. Um, and safe journey to me. I, I was one of those kids. I grew up in the U.S. and went by EJ for a long time because mm. I was just I don't like when people can't say Ijama or don't try to say Ijama properly. So I feel like it's not that hard. But I went by EJ for a, a really long time um, and kind of had this awakening post-college where I was like, you know, actually my name has meaning and it has purpose and it was intentionally designed and created for me and given to me and it is a blessing. Anytime mm -hmm. someone says my name, it is a blessing to me. It is a blessing to them. It is a blessing to us all that wherever we go through out in life, it will be safe. We will be well. It will Absolutely. be good with us. Mm. Um, so that's where I start whenever I introduce myself. I am Ijama. I am Safe Journey. It really drives how I think about what I do in life, why I feel very comfortable doing a million different things, because I just know <laughs> it's always going to work out for me. Okay. You know, that's okay. just how I'm blessed. <laughs> so yeah, that's how I start out. Fantastic. Well, I met a couple of people earlier today who know you from your content creator mm -hmm. days. Yes. I think they've, they're they officially in, in the rear view at this they point. They are 100 percent in the rear view. <laughs> okay. Yes. So we'll talk a little bit why that is so clearly in the rear view. But it's it's interesting that you, you start off with the meaning of your name, because mm -hmm. I think you're right. There's so much richness there. Mm -hmm. And it actually, in my mind, ties a lot to the work that you're doing in creating safety for people in medical mm -hmm. and public health spaces. So let's walk through some of the early years of what led you to this career path. Um, I won't tell your story for you, but I know we share a lot of the same kind of immigrant pathways. Right. So tell us mm -hmm. kind of what your journey has been from yeah. your roots to now. Mm -hmm. So as I mentioned earlier, I believe, I was born in Nigeria, or I'm Nigerian, I'm born in Nigeria. I moved to the US when I was 18 months old. And um, why my name is significant is my mom knew when she was pregnant with me that she would be leaving me. Mm. Um, so she immigrated to the US first as a nurse during the 90s nursing shortage and left myself, my older brother, and my dad behind. Um, for So I, she left when I was about five months old. Oh, wow. um, but again, like left knowing that 
I would be fine because mm. that's that's the name she gave me. The, mm. My journey through life would be fine, and her also her journey would also be fine and would be safe and would be well. Um, so growing up in the U.S., growing up in New Jersey, I grew up in a very when people say like you're American, I'm like, haha, I might sound it. Yeah. But <laughs> don't let these accents fool you. I'm very Nigerian. <laughs> I grew up in a very Nigerian household. Um, everything was culturally. I was raised Nigerian. I just happened to not be. You happened to live in America. I, I happened to not be in Hawaii. I was in New Jersey. Um, and so I think that why that's why I bring that up and why that's important is because that shapes my worldview, right? Um, Nigerian culture is a lot of things. It's very beautiful, um, but it's also a, a society in which there's a lot of inequality. There's a lot of mm. patriarchy, which has also kind of shaped how I think about um, the importance of centering women in everything that I do. I'm also the only girl in my family. I have two brothers. I'm a middle child. So I'm simultaneously the oldest because I'm the only girl, but I'm also yes. um, the the only girl. So I, you know, I got a little bit of only girl benefits, you know, a little bit, not yes. spoiled, but a little bit. <laughs> um, but all of that, you know, really, and also having a mom who was in the medical field, who was a nurse and would come back from the hospital from her overnight shifts with stories about what she experienced and what she saw in the hospital, even how patients treated her. And she's like, I'm trying to save your life. And you're mm. here telling me you want another nurse because of how I look. Um, some of those really early formative things shaped my interest in medicine at first um, and then eventually my interest in public health. So as many good immigrant children, my one sole purpose in life was to get good grades. <laughs> um, so I just I, I happened to be really good at test taking um, and had a pretty good memory. And so I, I never feel like I'm smarter than anyone else. That The way that education is set up, formal education, it rewards people who are good test takers. And I happen to be a Indeed. good test taker. Um, so I did really well in school and I did really well in the SAT and I, and I had the correct um, repertoire to get into Harvard. I don't take that lightly at all. Um, and when I got there and I, I thought that I was going to be a doctor, I started majoring in molecular biology and then, you know, got to organic chemistry. And I was like, I do not care <laughs> about chemicals and atoms. I do like literally could not bring myself yeah. to do the work because I just didn't care um, and really had to sit down and, and reconcile and figure out like, what is it about medicine that interested you? Is it that you just wanted to be a doctor because that's what you're supposed to do? One, I mean, of, the, one of the three options I'm you have. You, engineer, <laughs> yes, doctor, or lawyer, a lawyer, right. and yeah. maybe professor. Maybe. So that wasn't an, an option for us because okay. I mean I don't know. Well, mm, in Nigeria, professors are not. That's not a respected. Everyone's on strike. Schools are on strike all the time. So like your <laughs> professor is not getting paid well. That's not a respected you yes. know position. So professor was not in my mind whatsoever. It was to be a doctor, and I was interested in medicine, um, but realized that I cared about the health of people broadly. I did not care about people's like molecular cells. I didn't yes. care about <laughs> medical contraindications of prescriptions. Like none of that interested me. I cared about why are we well? Why are we sick? How can we collectively get better? And especially how could people who look like me have overall better health? Mm -hmm. And so that is what kind of um, drove me to start pursuing and, and pursuing coursework in public health. And at the time, um, Harvard's the only major they had that was like somewhat related to public health was history of science. And so I majored in history of science out of convenience because I mm. had all of these, you know, science classes and yeah. I wasn't about to take any longer because my parents, I cannot just go there now to graduate, yeah. like not in four years. Yes. So I had to get out <laughs> on time, um, majored in this, in major that really shaped and changed the trajectory of my life because I became fascinated with how not only the, the racial and gendered and kind of socioeconomic factors that shape our health and our well-being, 
but where they came from. What are the roots of all of these different health disparities that exist in the world? Why is it that some people have asthma and some people don't? Why is it mm. more prevalent in some populations, in some communities, in some neighborhoods? Um, and so I really became interested in understanding the historical grounding and the historical foundations of a lot of the kind of public health and medical issues that we talk about a lot today. Thank you for that. That's, um, I think I love hearing people's stories of how they get from A to B. And I love this concept of, I was concerned about why we are well and mm -hmm. why we are sick. Cause I think all of us here, we've just come out of the pandemic. We're not out of it. We're not, it. okay, thank you. <laughs> oh gosh. Thank you for over. joining us at Salam and Hello. <laughs> That's a wrap if we're not out of the pandemic. No, but you know, I think we will definitely talk about that. But yeah. you know, this question of why we're well and why we're not, I think if nothing else, the pandemic yeah. put a mirror up to all of our societies to say some people are sicker than others. Mm -hmm. Some people are having longer and different symptoms and, and why does that matter? And so before you got to that wellness space yeah. in terms of a full-time investment though, you spent a good bit of time in the content creation right. and, and storytelling space. Yeah. And it feels like to me, looking at some of your content, a lot of your story is about this dual immigration mm -hmm. road that you've had. Mm -hmm. First to the United States as a Nigerian and then as a Nigerian into Kenya. Mm -hmm. So tell us about that kind of experience in your life. Yes. So first I have to explain what brought me to Kenya. So sure. I have a lovely Kenyan husband who was here earlier with the kids, but we didn't want to have babies crying in the so background of the recording. Um, and so, you know, when we started dating, I visited Kenya because I wasn't about to marry somebody. I didn't know where they were from. Um, so I visited Kenya <laughs> and really fell in love, like fell in love with this country um, and the people and just the way of life, which again is very different from Nigerian culture and, and way of life. Um, and so when I finished grad school, I'd gone to college and um, graduate school straight through. I was one of those very foolish and naive people who at 21 thinks they should go into mm. a PhD because it's, you know, why not go do a PhD when you know so much about the it's world? It's a Nigerian in you. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so after I finished my PhD, I was like, I have been in school since I was three. Sit down, go and sit down and do something. <laughs> so um, he brought up the idea, like, you know, why don't we go and like live in Kenya for a little bit? And I was like, sure, cool. Let's That's just, it. let's up and go. And then we came. So in 2019, we moved here. It was a great time to move to Kenya because it was pre-pandemic um, and really enjoyed being here and, and still really think of this as home. We're making mm. it home. Um, it's always obviously been his home, but I, it is now like more and more starting to be home for me as well, which is really nice. Um, but I think that some of the things that have shaped the dual immigration is one, I was, I was an immigrant first. I was always an immigrant. So when he suggested moving, I never felt like, and again, I, I am American. I have an American passport, but I don't identify as American. Mm -hmm. I am very much Nigerian. And sometimes if I like, I'm feeling the country, I might throw in Nigerian American, but usually <laughs> I'm just Nigerian. Um, and so I wasn't like afraid or concerned about uprooting and moving. Um, I always remind myself, my parents did this before WhatsApp Internet, and FaceTime. Viber. They yes. did it before all of these things and they made it. Like yeah. they, and they, they moved somewhere hard. Like mm. America is, I was talking to um, Eve who's, who did our makeup earlier and she was like, I just find it interesting when people are like eager to leave America. I'm like, America is not all it's cracked up to be. America is no, a not. little ghetto. Yeah. But um, <laughs> with all due respect, no. it is kind of a mess. Um, and so I really like, was excited for the opportunity to have a different experience. I'd never you know, spent considerable time in Nigeria. And so being able to like, say and really experience life on the continent and be able to do that with our children. Um, at that time, it was the one kid in the belly. But that was something that was really exciting for me. And I was really looking forward to. Um, 
and as soon as I got here, it was, I just, you know, I was really yeah. welcomed. Like yeah. Kenyans are so welcoming. Kenyans are the best. They're truly. so welcoming. Yeah. So I, yeah. I felt very much at home and I continue to feel at home anytime I'm here. I'm just like, <sighs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> just really at ease. Yeah. yeah. Let's shift now back kind of to your academic research and what brought you into being a historian of race and racism. So I think that distinction is important. Yeah. Um, and I think we could, is it fair to also add history of race and ethnicity? Would that be a fair addition to that? It would be um, because race and ethnicity are two different things. Yes. And in my, so I'll talk about, let me maybe first start with like what race is and how that's Let's different start at the from basics. ethnicity. Yeah. Um, so race is a social construct that explains one way of often thinking about physical human differences. So phenotypical differences. So skin color is one that is often used to uh, divide people racially. Mm -hmm. um, and race is a concept that was invented. Again, it's an invention. It's not real. It's not biological. It's not real. It's a social construct <laughs> invented Same. in the 17th century. So during the enlightenment, during the scientific revolution, um, as people were, you know, categorizing animals and plant species and, um, you know, doing all this taxonomy work when they came to homo sapiens and they were thinking about how do we categorize, you know, mm. further categorize this species, they decided to use racial categorization to differentiate and divide us. Um, in and of itself, pro in problematic? No, because mm. we can say that there are different kinds of flowers. Um, but the issue then lies with race is also a hierarchical system. Anyway, so there were originally five races, um, but the hierarchy was that black was at the bottom, African was at the bottom. Um, and it was like that from the very first what? John Blumenbach, because the people who, people who were involved in this intellectual thinking were from Europe. They were, they were white men. And so they put themselves at the top and then separated the rest of us by skin color and our skin was the darkest. And so we ended up at the bottom. So it was white and then Asian. Asian was often really close to white and Asian being um, East Asian. So not Southeast Asian, okay. so kind of clarifying like Chinese, Japanese, they were always most proximal to white. Um, and then we were always at the bottom. And so that's race. Uh, ethnicity is more about kind of like where you are geographically and ancestrally, right? Mm -hmm. And so what would you consider your ethnicity to be? Ethiopian. Okay. There's no right or wrong answer. There's no right or, There's wrong. No right or wrong answer. I'm sorry, God. <laughs> I could get this really wrong. The whole internet will come for me. No, there really isn't. It's okay. one of those things that it's really about self-identity. Race, really? on the other hand, ethnicity is about self-identity. Okay. Race, on the other hand, is often, you yes. can identify however you want. We, there are people who identify differently, yes. but it really is about how others place you yeah. and situate you. Um, so ethnically, I'm Igbo. I consider myself Igbo ethnically. Okay, That's so if you do I, that, then I would dial it back a couple steps. But it just yes. depends. Again, there's no right or wrong answer. Yeah. It's up to you. And I feel like we could go into like a part two and three of this this conversation <laughs> because that ethnicity piece is so yeah. important. It's actually what's covering so much, so much of our conflict right. these days. Yes. Yeah. We're also divided artificially with Absolutely. borders and, and whatnot. Absolutely. And so... Um, so that's race and ethnicity. And then racism is the study of the kind of like social implications of racial divisions and how they affect the different ways of, of life, especially around this power and hierarchical mm. system. Um, so when I study history of race and racism in medicine and, and science and health, what that means is, let's take asthma, for example. History of race and asthma is a question of, is there any are there racial differences in asthma disparity or incidence or mortality? Yes, there are. And so you can read that and say, oh, you know, maybe there's something different about black bodies versus white bodies or Asian bodies that causes them to have more asthma. But if you go further and ask, what is the history of racism? 
and asthma, you would then be able to understand that, well, historically, there are black people and other people of color, but mostly black people have been in the US context, have been systematically forced and um, moved to be able to be forced to live in specific areas of the, of the nation, of the city, um, are always historically have been only allowed due to redlining to live near train tracks, to live near garbage dumps, to live near bus depots. And these are the places where there are waste landfills and there is a lot of chemical um, manufacturing happening and the, the air is polluted. And so it's not a question of is there a biological difference between black and white bodies that's causing, that's causing asthma, but there's a social difference between black and white bodies based on mm. where they live that's then contributing to asthma. So that's why I think it's important to not just study race and racial differences, but really to study racism. And that means for me, that's the impact of the social and the lived reality of what it means to be black or white or Asian or the other two that I'm really forgetting right now. <laughs> you said Malay. You said Malay. You have Malay. <laughs> no, but I, I appreciate that. It's, it's, it's good when we talk about issues like this that are personal on some mm -hmm. level, right? They can be academic and yeah. heady, but they're also personal because we live in these bodies. Yeah. We operate in these bodies day to day. So there's no escaping the social, cultural, historical implications that then are attached to the body that we mm -hmm. move in. And so I appreciate you starting with just the definitions mm -hmm. so that we can continue to understand why your, your research is so relevant. So tell me about, was there ever a personal experience? You talked about, you know, kind of your intellectual mm -hmm. curiosity, but was there a personal experience or story that you could share with us that then really made you want to pursue this for the many years yeah. that you spent <laughs> studying it? Because it must feel personal on some level. Yeah, I get that question a lot, especially around asthma. People often assume that I have asthma. Um, I don't have asthma. No one in my family has asthma. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I kind of explained a little bit. My mom was in the medical field, so I knew about medicine. I, I knew about her experience as a health provider mm -hmm. and how she experienced racism from her patients, which I also find is interesting. Like, you about to, mm. all right, girl, oh, yeah. that's a choice yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're going to make when you're, like, on your sick bed to, like, mm. deny care from someone. Um, but in terms of the asthma, you know, where that line of study came from for me was in, in one of our like classes in college, I, when I just found out that um, African-Americans are three times more likely to be diagnosed with asthma and then three times more likely to die from asthma. And this mm -hmm. is at all ages, children to adults. Um, I couldn't wrap my, like, it just, it's one of those things that just like sticks with you and it doesn't make sense. And so yeah. you try to figure out like why. Um, and then I came across this article that, explained, it was from like 1890, this is where, where like my research in my book really starts, is um, that asthma initially was conceived as a white disease. It was thought to be a disease that black people could not have because it was framed as a civilized disease, a disease for civilized people. <laughs> I'm like, my mind is like, is it, are you with me? My mind is like hurting right now by this, this thought yes. process. And it was because the first people to study asthma were asthmatic doctors. And so kind of okay. thinking about the social um, class implications of, of disease, which I also study alongside race. If you are, are a white male doctor and you are going to the Hamptons for your summer retreat. This is a beachside resort <laughs> right, in New York. Right, beachside resort yes. in the 18th, um, in the 1800s, the, the 19th century. And all of the people around you are also saying that they're, you know, their chest hurts a little bit when they're in the city. You can kind of get to a point where you might think, oh, only, we're the only ones who suffer from this. And then mm. you kind of, they shape their, um, ideology around the roots causes of asthma based on what they knew, which was that they had asthma themselves. Okay. Um, and so one of the things that I, I like to really challenge in my research is this idea that 
science or medicine are facts. It's all, everything's a construct, y'all. Like everything, everything Hmm. is really just, you know, there are some, there are, there's physical laws. um, But a lot of what we know about science and medicine are, are things that people have decided and like that is shaped by their cultural context that's shaped by where they are that's shaped by their own perspective and so really understanding like the social construction of disease and the social construction of the meaning of disease that's one of the things that got me really interested in okay how did we how did asthma go from a disease that black people could not have one day to now it's more prevalent in this community in another day like how in another like 60 years later, how did that happen? Um, and I've just been really stuck with that question and trying to explain because it affects so many people. It affects millions and millions of people worldwide. It's even becoming an increasing issue here in Kenya um, mm. because of urbanization, because of pollution, because of these things that we know cause asthma, not because all of a sudden there are no, now more black right. people in Kenya, right? Like that's right, not why right. there's more asthma here, um, but because of all these environmental in- impacts or effects effects on our health and our well-being. So, yeah. Well, and that's why I think your scholarship is so important because it may have started off as a disease in this centralized place. But mm-hmm. as you said, you know, we know the continent is urbanizing at an alarming rate. Yeah. More and more people are seeking employment, coming to big cities. And so what comes with that mm-hmm. move, economic move, mm-hmm. the health outcomes yeah. connected to it, I, I've actually never thought about it. I think that's incredibly valuable mm-hmm. and important scholarship. We are still in a pandemic, as you said a moment ago, much to my dismay. You didn't uh, know? I mean, I knew, but you know, those masks were hot. And so <laughs> I am definitely one of those people who, you know, had kids and, you know, online school. And I'm like, we're done, y'all. Pandemic is over. But I appreciate you saying we're not. Yeah. So what has COVID or what is COVID mm-hmm. teaching us? Mm-hmm. And I'd love for you to talk about it from the intersection of race and ethnicity here on the continent, Mm -hmm. as well as in the diaspora. Because if we have not learned anything from this pandemic, shame on us, because we must learn, I think, and grow from this moment. So capitalize that for us. Maybe we start here at home at the continent. What what has this pandemic taught us? Absolutely. I think one of the most interesting takeaways from the pandemic was that people who probably before had not thought about public health, we're now forced, like we were all forced to think about public health, whether or not we wanted to. Yeah. We all kind of collectively understood this concept of, you know, protecting your individual self to, pro- to protect a larger public, you know, masking, quarantining, isolation, curfews um, in places that had sense <laughs> to do those kinds of public health measures. So I do feel like there was one big takeaway that what I do with my life not only just impacts me, but can impact others, which I think is an important and one of the beneficial takeaways. Um, one of the other things that came out, though, was uh, an unfortunate like resurgence of very racist thinking about the difference between African bodies and, and the rest of the global world. There were researchers, people with degrees, who suggested mm. that because COVID rates were lower in Africa, there was something special about African bodies that, you know, made us less susceptible to the disease that, um, you know, to better understand, to better understand, to kind of use our bodies as research hosts to then help the rest of the world to kind of test vaccines here in a very shoddy way. Not that like vaccines should obviously be tested, but they should be tested worldwide. They shouldn't just be tested on our bodies because we're not uh, suffering from COVID as, as to the alarming rates that other people um, were. So I think that was one of the unfortunate takeaways, you know, for us is this um, a reinforcement, unfortunately, of a belief that somehow Africans are, their bodies are disposable. They, we can be used for research as we have been used historically. And, um, 
you know, also kind of compare it rather than learning from us, like what is Africa doing well right. <laughs> that is, re- that is like keeping COVID at bay. Yeah. Uh, you know, the question kind of turned back to like, what are the biological reasons and why an entire continent of people who are all very biologically different are, are not really dying at the cer- same rates as people were in the West. Um, so I feel like that was one of the, for me, one of the saddest kind of takeaways um, was just this resurgence of, of racist ideologies about African bodies. Um, and then I think globally in the diaspora, that kind of notion about African susceptibility trickled in into the US, at least um, at the very beginning. There was a there was a moment where people were like, oh, black folks don't get COVID, yeah. right? <laughs> the very, very beginning. <laughs> um, but then, you know, once data around racial disparities and, and different you know, racial outcomes for COVID came out, we now start to realize that actually it was impacting black communities even more because of the socioeconomic factors that, you know, position people in places. If you can work from home, you probably are not going to encounter people who have COVID. But if you have to go to work, if you have to go work at Amazon in the warehouses that are shipping our two day two ply toilet yeah. paper to us from the comfort of our homes, people who work in those essential jobs, those essential workers who had to continue to go to work or often people of color. And so you know, we then realized that, oh, actually, this idea about you know, black and African impermeability to the disease is a false narrative. In fact, at least in the US, um, black and other BIPOC folks who often work in industries where often just white collar workers, right? Um, blue collar, sorry, blue collar <laughs> workers, um, you know, they're being more exposed to the, to the disease because they are not at home. They're yeah. not able to be at home. Yeah. Um, and I feel like that is one of the things that kind of came out, this, this realization, again, from a, a general public and not necessarily just like in the academic space, but I think people overall started to realize like, wow, racial health disparities are a thing. We're seeing it like play out right in front of us. I think that's so valuable. Can we just appreciate her for that insight? Um, I'm actually so glad I'm recording my own podcast so I can go back and listen to this <laughs> because you've dropped so many pearls of wisdom in the way you've framed both the questions that were asked, mm-hmm. why are black bodies not getting COVID, which mm-hmm. was a misperception, rather yeah, than- it was a shock. People were shocked. Right, <laughs> absolutely they were. Rather than what are they doing right? Yeah. What are they doing well? You know, are, they, are there schools outside? Oh, they are. Mm-hmm. You know, are there different kind of community, you know, engagement uh, norms? Oh, there is, you know, Mm -hmm. are people already in same family, multi-generational homes, et cetera. You know, there's so many things that could have, that we could have taught the world and and a missed opportunity there. I really, really appreciate you framing it in that way. And I, something else that I read that really startled me related to the pandemic is that this is not the first time when it comes to cancer, when it comes to prenatal care, when it comes to even something, you know, HIV AIDS, this has always been the case that there is this racist ideology that seeps in. Mm Because we're here on the continent and at least, you know, our live audience and a lot of members online, I would love to hear maybe how you see that playing out in terms of access to healthcare and how people are. Let me backtrack. I think sometimes there's a misperception because we're black people in a black place mm-hmm. that some of, we might be spared some of these assumptions mm-hmm. yeah, or some of these yeah. behaviors by the medical profession, mm-hmm. professionals or public health professionals. Right. Was that true or not true yeah. in this pandemic context? Yes. Oh, that's such a good question. I'm trying to decide if I want to answer this academically or personally or both. <laughs> um, let's, just do it. let's start with the personal, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So I'll, I'll start with the personal and then I'll get to the more academic. Um, so during the right before the pandemic, I had my son and I had him here in Kenya. Um, and this is tangentially related to COVID, but I promise I'll bring it back. Um, and when I was in the U.S., I 
the first five months of our pregnancy was, was in the US, um, I was a high risk pregnancy. because so I had fibroids and they were like, you're probably gonna have to have a C-section when this baby comes. And I was like, okay, cool. Had to have like a million ultrasounds. Every time I had a checkup, there was an ultrasound. I came here and they were like, oh, you have fibroids, cool. Everybody got fibroids. Let's yeah. <laughs> keep it Not moving. Right. Keep it moving. You're not special. <laughs> so I was like, um, like to my doctor, I was like, no, really. Like I have, like you should look at them. And she was like, no, like, you will be fine. We will deliver this baby. Like the end. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Thank you, Kenyan medical professionals. Yes. yes. <laughs> so I say that to say that you know, even though it's important to realize, medicine in general, medicine that's practiced here is often Western medicine. Um, textbooks that are that are taught I don't actually I don't know is is there a Kenyan author that is being that has written a medical textbook that is used to train medical doctors in Kenya I'm not sure my assumption is that it's not my assumption is that a lot of the curriculum is borrowed from the west because medicine western medicine has been shaped along the ideas of race I think mm. that in insidious ways and maybe not as um overtly as it would be in the US or the UK or other places in the world, what we know about how to treat and heal mm -hmm. bodies, what we know about disease is shaped by Western ideas of health and illness, which are inherently racist because they were designed um, by Listen, white men yeah. um, in a context in a society that believed in racial difference. So I think that is one of the fundamental things that I feel like people don't often realize is that you can you can end up in a situation where your provider has been trained to think, and even though they're in an African context, they've been trained to prescribe a, med a, a, a prescription, Absolutely. a chemical, um, based on what they've been taught in Western medicine. And there's a whole world of homeopathic medicine, of natural medicine. Um, there, Africa has had a long history of natural healing, um, of herbalists, and I think some of that gets missed when we... I'm not saying that to not go to the doctor. Please still get your annual checkups. <laughs> <laughs> but I think there's there needs to be a fundamental understanding that even though we're here, we're still influenced by Western medicine because that's what's being Absolutely. that's what's formalized Absolutely. and that's what's prioritized. Unfortunately, that's what people are celebrated when. I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell it myself, you know, my my OBGYN, like she was trained in the U.S. I was like, oh, her, she's the one mm. that I now feel comfortable, you know, delivering my child. Um, and I think that well, sometimes we have that mentality that if someone is trained abroad, you know, that they are more specialized, they are more adept at caring for us, and that is a it's a relic of colonial colonialism, um, and it is a relic of white supremacy. Like this, prioritizing white knowledge as like what is all, what is yeah. good mm -hmm. <laughs> what is what is correct um so i feel like that's one way it comes out on the other hand back to my fibroid story and i'll tie it back into covid um there is an understanding that in african context like things are different and so i feel mm -hmm. like i appreciate when there are healthcare providers here who do not over medicalize things in the same way that they are done abroad um, and how that relates to COVID is that one of the very first things that happened, and I won't forget this because it was the day after my husband's birthday, but when curfew happened, like the day it was curfew, it was masked, like, uh, how was masks mandated? Where are we going to get masks from? But no, you had to have a mask the next day. Yeah. And somehow we all figured it out. And I think that, you know, because we were on the continent, there was a inherent realization gover like from government leadership that we have to aggressively address COVID. Like we ha don't have room for, this is my right to not wear a mask and I'm gonna go protest. Like we mm. don't have time. Like we don't have time. Yeah. The stakes are just too high yeah. here. Um, and so I remember like, especially by the time it was like April and America was just 
on fire wild yeah and i was like i'm so happy to be in kenya right now where yes. people have sense yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. and we are you know taking precautions again for the greater good like and i think that that is an african mentality that we do things yes. for our like for each other there's a communal mindset and not an individual mindset that really drives a lot of Western cultures. And that was like the biggest issue with, with people marching to say it's my right to not wear a mask and I don't yeah. care if yeah, I don't yeah. want to get a vaccine. Like, bro, like people yeah. are dying. Yeah, like, yeah, wear the mask. It's not about yeah, you. It's really yeah. not about you. Yeah. Um, and so I did really appreciate that here on the continent um, in Africa during COVID. And again, we're still here. It's better, but it's going to be here forever. And that's why I'm saying that it's not sure. over. It's really now more endemic than it is pandemic. It's just, it's like the cold. It's going to come. All come. the time, there's going to be new variants. That's where we are now with the disease. Um, but we did a really, really good job. And the rest of the world was not paying attention because they'd be sleeping on us. Yeah. We did such a good job mm. of controlling the pandemic because we. I think that we, we the stakes were so high. Yeah, we knew absolutely. that we we couldn't afford to waffle around. We yeah. it was really harsh policies. People might have felt they were really harsh, but they worked. They, they worked. worked. I have some friends here from South Africa, and do you remember when South Africa did not let people buy alcohol? That's how far they took their restrictions. I was like, if that had happened in America, <laughs> things would have burned out. Yeah. Did it work though? And smoking too. Mm. They were serious down yeah. south. Whoa, that could not have happened in Kenya. That might've been what broke us here. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. I appreciate what you're saying because what I'm hearing from you is that that Ubuntu-ness mm -hmm. of our cultures, of our yeah. shared kind of global diaspora and right. continental cultures was, I, I have to do what I need to do yeah. For you because yeah. we don't exist apart from each other right. and that connectedness and we saw so many different behaviors in COVID. I'm laughing because I know people in the audience, we, we probably fall on the spectrum in terms of vaccinate, not vaccinate. You know who I'm looking at out there in the audience, but I'm not going to say your name, but I appreciate it <laughs> that there were also, well, there's also this, my, I trust my body. And there was yeah, this holistic yeah. turning also mm -hmm. to like, what have our ancestors taught us? Right. What do we know? And we navigated, you know, mm -hmm, we navigated, yeah. especially in the absence of vaccine proliferation, yeah, right? Yeah. And access to those or early even stages. vaccine distribution, which was inequitable, inequitably Wildly done. inequitable. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And so thank you for kind of, I think, highlighting what we have to offer mm -hmm. going forward. Right. I, um, because the pandemic is here to say our endemic, mm -hmm. that I hope that the research now is, is turning their eyes a little bit more closely to the content. I hope. Are you seeing those trends in academia? I don't know, actually. Yeah. I don't mm, think so. Sorry. Okay. That's okay. <laughs> I also don't study, I don't study COVID closely. Sure, um, sure. I study more, um, so COVID is an infectious disease. So I study more chronic diseases. Um, so things like asthma, diabetes, obesity, heart disease, et cetera. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, let's talk about that a little mm -hmm. bit more. Um, we are all here. And I think one of the things I asked Ijeoma to do was to also resource us as an audience you know, for us to not just hear this as an intellectual conversation, but for you to all walk away with some questions in mind or some tools in your pocket around your own access to healthcare and how you're navigating those spaces, either for yourself or, or the communities that you're in. So can we bring this down to the granular level yeah. in terms of, are there red flags or, or questions we should have in our mind as we are choosing or engaging with healthcare practitioners? Mm. Yeah. Um, and, I and I really appreciate you sharing your own personal story. Thank you mm -hmm. for that. Um, if you know Ijeoma's work, she continually uses herself <laughs> um, as a case study. I have to say this one thing. She had this post, this is a while ago, where she was like, um, Black women, um, I know some of you have never used a tampon. However, <laughs> you're not going to get pregnant. Put the thing in your vagina and keep it moving. And I was like, thank you for saying that. Yes, yes, Maury. She said that. Yes, she did. But I think that's so important. We've been so miseducated about yeah. what is a benefit to us. And meanwhile, 
our non-black sisters out there swimming. Swimming, swimming, and doing all the things. Going to the Olympics. Going to the Olympics, doing everything <laughs> while we are at home on the couch waiting for this thing to pass. Mm -hmm. So Not going to school. Not going to school. Yeah. Thank you. So many things. Yeah. Exactly. So thank you, Jim. I just want to acknowledge that she has put her words into practice on her public platforms to really raise the awareness around health-seeking behaviors and, you know, the kind of things she wants for all of us. So thank you for being who you are in that space. So what are the tools? What are some questions, skills, anything yeah. that we can take forward as we engage with health practitioners? Yes. So I think it's, it's hard to get at, but I think it's important to try and figure out, especially if you're switching healthcare providers, just kind of understand where their biases are. Um, and it's, it's hard to get at, but if you can kind of ask them a couple of questions to just understand, do they, one, what kind of knowledge do they prioritize? Do they read, mm. what journals do they read? Do they read African medical journals? Do they read Western medical journals? Like where, where do they center their knowledge? Where are they pulling knowledge from? I think that's one thing to ask. Another thing might be to ask about, especially if you have a health condition that you're seeking um, advice or, or consultation on, is to ask them, what they would prescribe for their own mom, or their mm -hmm. own sister, their own daughter. The medical industry, unfortunately, is very much married to the pharmaceutical industry. Mm -hmm. um, and again, I'm not that kind of person. Who, I take I take medication. I'm not the kind of person who like, doesn't believe at all in Western medicine. But I think it's just you need to be aware that what your doctor might first prescribe to you might simply be what was most recently sold to them and not necessarily what is best for you. So ask those questions about why are you recommending this, this drug for me? Why are you recommending this treatment for me? What are the different um, contraindications? What are the different, excuse me, side effects? Would you recommend this to someone who is XYZ? Would you recommend this to another kind of person? Um, so I feel like asking those kinds of questions is, is really important. Um, I had another thing that I wanted to say. It is escaping me now. So it'll come back. It'll come back. Well, I would love to know. Oh, yeah, I got it. Yes. Okay, so back to the drugs again. Um, there's a lot of work really done being being done right now about in like the clinical trial world. And unfortunately, many of us are not represented in clinical trials. So if you're being prescribed a new medication for something or there's a new procedure, you should ask mm -hmm. how many black or African people were included in the trial that said that this is something that the that like should be done. Like who, yeah. who was in those studies that's, that now make us feel like this is an effective strategy? Because the reality is that we're often not in those studies. Mm. Um, and again, not to say that it won't work for you, but just to have a better understanding of whose bodies were, were researched on mm. um, and who was included in, in that scholarship that's kind of now shaping like something that you are now gonna ingest or is gonna be done um, to you. So those are the kind of questions that I would ask. Like what, where are you getting your knowledge from? Like where, yeah. what are you reading? Where, where's your like source of truth? And then who has taken this drug before? Who like, who was involved in the research and the creation of it? And would you recommend this to someone who is not like me? Hmm. Yeah. Excellent questions. I'm just thinking about how many fields this actually applies to, you know, it's, I, I would, I'm going to take all those into my next healthcare conversation, yes. but I also makes me think about buying a home or yeah. looking at financial advice or looking at educational advice, mm -hmm. you know, all of these things. I feel like all these questions, who, who have you worked with before? Who's like me? Mm -hmm. Where is your research? Your, what did you say? Truth base? What was your source of truth? Yeah, source That's of such truth. a good phrase. So, so I'm going to ask my husband that <laughs> next time he comes at me sideways. What's your source of truth, Ben? You know, because I really love that idea of like, what is your source? What are you pulling yeah. from? What's yeah. anchoring you, right? Yeah. That makes such a difference. But I do want to come back to what you said earlier, what we were talking about, race as a construct. Mm -hmm. So race is a construct, yeah. but then why does it matter yeah. that we yeah. ask those questions? Yeah, so um, although it's constructed, it has real manifestations. Because 
race like shapes how we interact with each other socially. Not so much here, although there are places that you'll go and you won't be served because yes. other people will be served before you. Yes. And you remember that race is in fact real in yes. Kenya. Um, but especially around the diaspora, race shapes so much of, of life. It shapes the jobs that you can, you have access to. Even something like your name. There's so many studies that have been done on just your name on your resume, yes. you can get a job or not get a job because you had a black sounding name or an African sounding name. And so because a lot of how we move in the world is shaped by race, it ends up affecting our health and our, our well-being because that is part of how we move yeah, in the world, right? Um, so it's not real. It's not biologically real, but it's very much socially real. So I feel like that's, that's kind yeah. of the difference there. There's no – our blood is all the same. Yeah. <laughs> our DNA is all the same. There's 99% – similarity between all different racial ethnic groups in terms of DNA. There's more difference between us than there is between us and someone who has a lot paler skin than us. Yeah. Um, but that doesn't mean that our social experiences, our life experiences will be the same. Those are often shaped yeah. by how we look. I was at an event this week called Little Gig and um, one of the people I had the joy of interviewing was Titsi Dangarempa, the Zimbabwean um, author. She wrote Nervous Conditions, mm -hmm. the, This Mournable Body, which was mm -hmm. shortlisted for the Booker, but she yeah. used the term melanated people. Mm -hmm. I really liked that. I was yeah. like, ooh. I know we all have melanin. Yes. Some to deeper, various amounts. To various amounts. But I, like, I liked that term, so I appreciate you continuing to frame the question. So the way you frame, the way you think about these things, to me, really links directly to your work of founding Cohort Sisters yeah. because it seems like in a lot of ways you listen to your mom, her experiences as a nurse, that obviously sat with you. Then you had your own doctoral journey, which I'm sure, of course, shaped you. So tell me why an organization like Cohort Sisters became a necessary mm -hmm. endeavor for you. Yeah. So um, I mentioned that I went, to I went straight through to grad school. So graduated college in May, was at Columbia in August. Girl. I was feeling so cool that I was like, oh, I'm moving out. I'm in New York. Like oh <laughs> I was feeling so This makes good. me just tired. Just I know, but it. it was um <laughs> it was not really the smart thing. And I advise anyone against going straight through. But I had done so many summer research programs. I'd written an honors thesis. I went to Harvard, like, mm. and I don't flex that often, but like, I felt like I was going to be fine. Like I went yeah, to Harvard, yeah, like I'm going to sure. be fine in grad school. Fair. And <laughs> I was fine academically, but socially, in my courses, I had I felt I was often the only person who looked like me. And I didn't go to the University of Kansas. I went to Columbia. It's in New York City. It's in the most diverse city probably in the world. Um, but I was often the only black person in the room. Um, often, and I expected whenever we talked about, whenever, and it was a school of public health. So whenever something came up around the health of Harlem, which is where the school is located, there would be, you know, just side turn. People would be like, Ijeoma? What do you think? And I'm like, I don't know. I'm not from here. I'm from, I'm from Nigeria. I don't know. Um, so there was this kind of like burden on me that I was supposed to know all of the answers to all of the issues that black bodies were experiencing. So that was one issue. I just felt like there was, I was isolated. I was all alone. I was the only person who looked like me in so many of my classes. That was issue number one. Issue number two is um, there's so few faculty who look like me. And this is one of the reasons why I ended up kind of returning back into academia after swearing that I was not going to be a professor. But I went through so much of my education with so few black women faculty members. And so when it was time for me to build my dissertation committee, I'm doing a dissertation on the history of asthma in black folks. And I, for a long time, did not have any black people on my committee. And I was like, yeah, I, like, it's not going to, yeah. I, I can't do this. Yeah. Right. But that there's just so few of us in in academia, in higher education. Um, 
So it was hard to find mentors who understood when, maybe we'll talk about the book, but when Eric Garner died, mm -hmm. when Eric Garner was murdered, while I was in graduate school, I could not type a paper that I had due. And mm. like, they didn't understand that. And I was like, I, yeah. I had gone, I had protested, I had marched. And I was like, this bioethics paper, I don't care. I'm, yeah. not, I'm not writing this. I, I actually like took an incomplete on that class and was like, mm. I, can't, I literally physically could not sit down mm. and type a paper because it did not matter. In that moment, it did not matter. And there weren't any people on my committee, there weren't any faculty members who understood that. Like, it wasn't just about what you were reading in class, what you were learning about. Like, there are real ramifications of being black in America at the time that was affecting my ability to show up in class, but they didn't get that. So yeah. really struggled with mentorship, really struggled with community. Um, and although I was academically prepared and I had gotten a five-year fellowship and I felt really, you know, I was funded, but still, um, I was there for longer than I thought. I was supposed to graduate in six years. That's the typical timeline for my discipline. Um, but again, I had taken that incomplete. <laughs> um, I thought I was going to, I wanted to quit. I, I really seriously mm -hmm. drafted, that email was, was, was drafted several times. I talked to my advisor and he suggested I just take a leave of absence for a semester, which I did. Um, and so it took me a little longer to finish. So my funding had had run out. So the, the last year, and this is why I really like went hard with blogging because I was like, I need money mm. to live in New York. I need to be able to afford New York. Um, and so it took me a little bit longer. It was expensive. I was really fortunate to be able to finish without any student loans. But that is definitely not the reality of most people's experiences. Um, and so when I finished, I was here. Congratulations. Crossing my legs, yeah. <laughs> enjoying life in Kenya, the beautiful sunshine. But I kept on reflecting on, I, I was proud that I finished, but I was exhausted and I was burnt out. Um, and I kept on going back to this idea of like, you, you were set up to succeed. Like you had the training, you had the funding, you had you lived an hour from your parents like I and I would go home very often mm. just cry and eat rice <laughs> with my parents to feel better. And so I kept on going back to this idea of if I struggled so much, knowing all of the things that were set up for me to succeed, how much more are people who do not have a full ride, who do not have family close by, who um, did not have summer mm. research experience before, who have never been in the Ivy League, so don't know all that drama of being mm. in a PWI, how much more are they struggling? And the more that I started talking to people online who were also in doctoral programs all around the country, all around the world, it became really clear that there was a, a big gap in how black women spe specifically are not being served in their doctoral programs. Mm. Um, we drop out. There's 40 only 40% of people, black people who start doctoral degrees complete those doctoral degrees. A lot of us take much longer to finish. We take on average three years longer than the national average. Wow. We graduate with three times more debt than other people. And if you think about, often people will get a doctoral degree because kind of two, two, two different paths people take. Either they really care about something, which is like not that many people, or <laughs> they're getting a doctoral degree because they want to like improve their lives. They yeah. want to earn more money. They want to have more respect in their field. And so if we are graduating, if we're completing these degrees, but we are emotionally drained, we're financially drained, what benefit are we going to be able to, we can't even use our research. I was at a point where I was like, I don't want to publish this research because I am so exhausted. And all of that would have been lost. So I feel like it's so important to want to encourage more 
black women and non-binary people to pursue doctoral degrees, but to not stop there. We have to equip them with the resources, the mentorship, and the community to be able to sustain and complete those degrees and complete them holistically well. Not just mm. to graduate and say, I have a degree, I have these letters after my name, but I am, I'm okay. I want to use my research. I want to do something good. I want to impact the world with this knowledge that I have. Maybe that's going and becoming a professor. Maybe not. Maybe you go and, you know, go and head the WHO or something else and prevent the next pandemic. Mm. Um, but we have to have more of us in these spaces. Otherwise, and you know, black women always save everything. So we just, yeah. need, we just we need more see. of us. We just <laughs> need more of us. We Absolutely. need more of us in, in a lot of leadership spaces. One of the avenues to, to get that is by earning a doctoral degree. Um, and so Cohort Sisters is really committed to increasing the number, the representation, and the retention of black women and non-binary folks globally across the diaspora with doctoral degrees. I have nothing to say except to thank you. That's extraordinary. I, one of the statistics I saw on your website was that 3% yeah. of PhD holders are black women. Yeah, only 3%. Only 3%. That is alarming yeah. because it ties back to how we started our conversation. If the texts that the world is leaning on to educate the next generation of teachers, lawyers, doctors, practitioners of any discipline are primarily still so West leaning mm -hmm. and there are no people of color in those yeah. places writing those texts, being an expert in their field, then our knowledge bank and our source of truth yep is incredibly narrow for a yeah. world that by 2050 is gonna be very different than what right. we experience now and be very ill-equipped for our future. So mm -hmm. thank you for the work that you're doing. I was just thinking about how you use the words to, to complete it and to complete it well and yeah. have this holistic experience. Mm -hmm. I feel like we need a cohort sisters for life though because <laughs> every black woman I know is tired yeah. and is holding up you know, yeah. more than her fair share of family responsibilities, cultural responsibilities, right. et cetera. So thank you for the incredible work that you're doing. Um, I'm glad that that PhD did not break your soul. Or, or, or it almost did, out. but I, I came back. I'm Nigerian. We always, yeah, uh, we never carry last. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So her book is called, let me read the whole title out to you because it's such a powerful uh, title. I Can't Breathe, Racism and the Rise of Asthma in Black Urban America. Mm -hmm. And if you were, you know, at least socially conscious during those 2020, you know, Eric Garner was a black man who was murdered in the United States and the police kneeled on his neck. Yeah, that was 2014. 2014. The 2020 Oof, was George Floyd. Sorry. Yeah, who also... 2020 was George Floyd. Yeah. 2015 was Michael... Mike Brown. Mike Brown. I mean, yeah. there's just so many. Yeah. Um, it's hard to... It's a tragedy and a shame on, on mm -hmm. the U.S. But but in his... When he's being arrested, he's telling the, the officers the whole time, I can't breathe. Yeah. Like, it, yeah. I cannot breathe. And they did not ease up. They did not persist. They did not, they denied him his human rights. Yeah. And as a result, he was murdered, as you rightly put it. So tell me what your book is teaching you as you research Ooh. and what you want your book to offer us. Okay. I'm going to have to answer the second question sure. first, because I need sure. to think on the first. Um, I've never, no one has ever asked me what the book is teaching me. I love that question. Um, what it has to offer and, and why it's called I Can't Breathe. I'm glad you brought up Eric Garner. So in case people weren't aware, Eric Garner, one of the reasons why he was saying he couldn't breathe is because he had asthma. And so his, when you have asthma, your airways are typically more constricted than a person who does not have asthma. And so he had less air available in his lungs, mm -hmm. um, which I don't think would have mattered. Like anyone who has a knee on your neck, you probably, you know, are, are struggling to breathe, but he especially had lower lung capacity. Um, and again, like that was, I told you, like that was a, a that was a moment in my grad school career yeah. where I was like, I, this means nothing. I cannot do this work anymore. Um, so it was important for me to tie that phrasing that really started a whole, you know, 
global Black Lives Matter movement into the book because when it came, when the trial came, it's just like so embarrassing. America is so embarrassing sometimes. But during the trial, um, the defense argued that because he had asthma, he, he died because he had asthma, not because he had mm. several people's knees on his, on his neck. Um, and so I was really curious and I want to kind of show people and tell people how asthma is kind of a, a stand-in for a variety of racism, um, a variety of ways in, in which racism impacts our health and our ability to breathe. Mm. So I'm, I'm localizing it with just asthma and, and the breath of asthma, but I'm hoping that people can kind of take away an understanding of how racism is so deeply embedded in the medical system, in the healthcare system, that it shapes all of our well-being, in, often in negative ways. Um, so the story, it looks at the rise of asthma in, in Black urban America, so the rise of asthma in, in certain enclaves in Harlem and Philly, um, but also in the South, in New Orleans, um, and why, why these areas have such high rates of asthma. This is not a fluke, it is not by genetics, there's a huge, there's so much money being poured into genetic research and asthma right now. And it's a waste because it's it's not genetic, it's environmental. It's like so clearly environmental. Um, so that's one of, the, one of the things that I want people to take away from the book is, that, is a clear understanding using this one disease, the understanding this one disease of how racism is embedded in medicine. What it's teaching me, whew, I don't know if I know, I don't know. I don't know what it's teaching me. I, I've been working on it. It started off as my senior year undergraduate thesis. So I've been working for it, wow. working on it literally for 12 years now. Okay. Um, so it's really like been my life's work. Um, so I think that it's teaching me about patience and perseverance. Cause I did not, when I started, when I did the thesis in college, I didn't think it was going to be a book. I didn't want it to be a book. Even when I went to grad school, it was more like, I don't know what to do, so let me just apply for this PhD. <laughs> um, but in continuing to work on it, it's been giving me a lot of confidence. I've been showing up more authentically as myself in terms of the scholar, the mm. researcher. And again, because I didn't see myself, I didn't see people who looked like me, that many people who looked like me in those spaces, I struggled a lot with that identity. You know, mm. I think you asked me at the very beginning like how I would introduce myself and now I will say that I'm an assistant professor, but for a long time I would be like, oh, I'm a content creator, I'm a mom, I got, you know, yeah. and I also do research on the side. But, but now I think especially working on the book and becoming an authority in this space has given me more confidence to lean into my expertise. I'm an expert. If you want to know anything about the history of race and asthma, that I you know. Got me. I'm going to forget the five <laughs> races, but I will know everything there is to know about the history of race and asthma. And I think that's a really unique and special thing that I can not only not only brings joy for myself, but I'm able to be an example to my students, right? Yeah. To um, every year I teach, every semester I teach, I have more and more black women in my classes. And I'm like, hey girl, yeah. thanks Welcome. for joining. Yes, yes, yes. Um, and it's so, it's so important for me to be able to do the work and to be able to inspire and shape the next generation. Oh, yeah. Thank you, do you mind just goosebumps listening to you say that. So we're going to play the game in just a second, but I want to ask one last question because there's some people here who know you from your content creator days, and I love that there's an ambulance going by <laughs> as she's talking about. <laughs> I hope health. they're okay. Hope they're, they're, they're good. Um, 
But a lot of people here know you from your content creators, which you also did for 12 years. Yeah. You like you like to do things in 12. You're like Jesus well, and the, the disciples. Well, the content creation started because I was like, you I don't want to do my homework. <laughs> so let me instead record this video at 2 a.m. instead of going to sleep. Like the things you do in college. The things you do. I, I know those well because of so many kids in college right now. Um, but you have you did it so well. So Thank many people you. start off in that Thank space yeah. and it's, it's exhausting, but your creativity, if you look at her page, it, it's beautiful. Aesthetically, it's beautiful. She shows up joyfully to the conversations. I know some of you follow her here and see you nodding your heads. She comments back when people say something to her, it'll be like 125 comments in and she's still like, thank you. Thank you. So good for you to be. I mean, I'm like, that takes energy. And I have so appreciated the joyful way that you interact with people truthfully, yourself yeah. that's always been my impression yeah. and I've just always been so impressed by that but you left it behind yeah I know it's not a short conversation but maybe in short as we're getting to the end here why yeah. did you leave it all behind yes so to be clear I left I didn't leave content creation behind itself I left influencing behind what's um, the difference in your mind the difference is that you anyone can create content you pick up your phone you take a picture you've created content Indeed. that's content creation yes um you don't have to post a picture to post is a different thing. Creating it is just to take the picture. Influencing is when you, that is your work. When you are working towards being able to convert the content you've created into monetary value by either working with a brand or being an affiliate. Um, and so that is what I've, I've left behind. And there are a couple of reasons, many different reasons. It's a blog post, go read it, about why <laughs> I stopped influencing, but really high level, um, I think three main things. One, I was in the game for a long time. I think that naturally people outgrow things. And when I started influencing, I was I was dating Jonathan at the time, but we weren't serious. We were in college. We weren't serious. Um, so now I have two children. Like there are more yeah. people involved in my day to day life who would, in theory, like be showing up. And as I said, I show up very authentically. So like I would, if I was still doing it, um, there are just more people involved who I would, you know. I need to consider my kids and like whether they want to be in this video. I cringe so much. Actually, I was watching um, a reel like two days ago and I saw it was like this whole family and they did a whole outfit switch. And one of the girls didn't I, like she you did not tell. want to be in that video. <laughs> and I was like, oh, poor baby. Yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, so now that I have kids, I, I consider that even like when um, we got married, like sometimes Jonathan be like, I don't. I don't want to be in the picture, babe. I'm like, yeah. you know, but you got to be in the picture because we, yeah, this is my job to be in yeah. the picture. Yeah. Um, so that's one. It's just like, you know, being, growing older and having other people being involved. Two, um, in terms of like working with brands, um, being a, a, an influencer in the American context, very lucrative. Like sometimes I miss, I'm like, I have to go and buy this thing. Like, <laughs> they used to no give it to me. No one's giving it to me for free. <laughs> very, you can, like people earn very well. I did very well. Um, but as you said, like, it's so time consuming. You're, you have to engage the way to build, uh, if you, unless you're like super skinny, super rich, have a luxe lifestyle, light skin, long hair, mm. you know, if you want to grow on, on the social platforms, if you want to be able to beat the algorithms, you have to be really intentional about building community. And I did that well, but that took time. That took energy. That took effort. Um, and I wasn't going to half-ass it. So I, like, mm. I did reply for a long time, replied mm. to every comment. Mm. Then I hired someone to reply to every comment. <laughs> Listen, we never felt it. I, yeah. never felt, I was like, oh, she saw me. No, she didn't, but that's okay. Um, so I think that was part of it too. Just like the, 
the industry, mm. the industry, the the demands, you know, people feel like, oh, you know, they just posted this little ad. Like the number of times that caption was reviewed and, and sent back and the fact that the brand said that you actually have to wear blue in the picture, like people don't really know all of that that goes behind influencing. So I think that was also part of it. Um, and then lastly, <sighs> when you when your income is dependent on likes, this is not a good vibe. It's, yeah. it's not that's not a good look. It can really impact your social your mental health. Sorry. Any advice for us as we're navigating the, the social media world that that life and influencing really taught you that we can take yeah. into mm-hmm. how we engage in social media or, or teaching those we care about right. engaging? So I think one of the things that I see a lot of, um, it's fun to say kids these days, but a lot of kids these days, they want to be influencers, right? They mm-hmm. want, they want to be able to play video games and, and get money. And I'm like, that's really awesome. I think it's important to, um, to not prevent your kids from like using social media. They're going to do it regardless of whether or not you think they're doing it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but to have really honest conversations with them about, about their goals. And if they want to pursue content creation, I would say like, let them, let them try, but also like that can't be your end all be all. There are so many like 19 year olds right now on TikTok. I'm like, what's going to happen when there's no more TikTok, sis? Yeah, what skills yeah. do what's you have? Yeah. What you going to do? Yeah. <laughs> what's the plan? Yes, I hear a lot of, um, <laughs> in the audience. Yeah, yeah. So I have, like, I have one of my cousins, um, is 16 and like, he like is, is convinced <laughs> that he can, I'm like, you can do it, but I need you to also hit them yeah. books and make yeah. sure that we have other options. Yeah. Um, so I think that's, that's one angle is to, if they're interested in, in content creation and influencing, encourage them that it's a creative outlet. So encourage them to do so, but, um, try to get them to be realistic about the fact that there is a yeah. very, very, very small percentage of people who are able to earn a living wage post creating content online. Um, and the second thing is to just be mindful about their, their mental health. There are, unfortunately the the platforms, they know what they're doing. If they're designed, people have, they've used PhDs Mm. (laughs) who like are PhDs in psychology who have done the work to like figure out how to keep us on the platforms longer, um, Mm. who how to keep kids on the platforms. There's all this stuff that's, you know, come out about how Facebook, Facebook knows Meta knows, not Meta knows that kids, you know, after using Instagram, like feel worse about themselves. Like they know, and they've, mm-hmm. they've done nothing because they want, like their end goal is money. So they want us to, to be on the platforms more. So really, I think look into making sure that your kids are, are, are well, yeah. you know, that their yeah. mental health is not being impacted by comparing, oh, well we, my friend and I both posted the same outfit we are both in the picture, but they got more likes than me. So yeah. like that means that people, my friends at school like her, they don't like me. And it's you can people can really go yeah. down that rabbit hole. I did it as an adult. And yeah. so many of us adults do. So kids who are not able to really regulate their um, emotions as well, it's really important for us to keep a close eye on them. Absolutely. Yeah. So what I hear you saying is everybody should only follow at Salam and Hello on Twitter, <laughs> Facebook, and Instagram. Thank you so much. That was it. That was a takeaway. <laughs> that was a takeaway. No, thank you, Gioma. You're so, so thoughtful. And um, I just... Yeah, I love talking to you. All right, so now for the game. This is a Nairobi audience. I want to remind you where you are. And I want to remind you, you I'm Nigerian oh, and I don't Lord. care because we Nigerian. <laughs> All right, let's just go. Let's just go. The first question. So this okay. co- question, we like to play these games. We played it recently with a friend from Santon Freak. So we did Who Does It Better? Kenya and Santon Freak. That game ended in a tie, okay. by the way. Who's keeping score? Uh, I am. Okay. And- <laughs> Your keys to keeping score. So anyway, so we like to play these little games to spice it up. And um, okay, let's just get to it. Okay, so this is going to be pick one country, Nigeria or Kenya. 
You spent many years as a natural hair influencer. Yes. Who has the dopest, most creative hairstyles? Oh, Oh, this is such a good question. See, I'm not expecting Okay. <laughs> I'm going to have to give it up to y'all. Okay. Kenya, that was a surprise. Becky, my producer, was like, she's going to say that. Should there be context? No, no, we don't need context. No, Let's no keep context. it moving. Let's, well, just because you for Kenya. Yeah. <laughs> one for Kenya. Yeah. But what did, you, what did you like about what you saw in Kenya, though? So I feel like... Kenyans are more appreciative of their natural hair than Nigerians. We're still very much like weave game, wig game. Um, but I, I feel like Kenyans, like, we just, so many locks, so many beautiful yeah. braided styles, loose natural styles. So um, I feel like we're winning. But that's just also. I mean, this yeah. audience is yes. definitely winning. Just look yes, at your yes, neighbor. Yes. Look at your neighbor. Everybody's all. winning Close here. Crops. So. Like, Kenyans can rock any hairstyle. Yes. Really. Okay. That's one for the East Coast. Okay. Who has better wildlife safari experiences? Wildlife safari experiences. When this is, is rigged. This is rigged. Okay, okay, we'll keep going. Okay, when you're hungry, so that's two, two zero, by the way. When you're hungry, what satisfies most, jollof or nyamachoma? Oh, she already had the flag up. <laughs> do not let her do that. She has to wait till she hears the question. When you're hungry, the answer is always Nigeria. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fine. That's fine. You can catch up two to one. <laughs> all right. Um, all of you had jollof here? Yes. Where's a good joint in Nairobi to get jollof? Where do you go? Do you go anywhere? Oh, no. No, okay. Let's keep moving. Okay, but Mama, um, is it Mama no, Africa? Mama, Mama Shanti. Shanti. Mama it's Shanti. Not bad. Yeah, Mama yeah, Shanti is yeah, yeah. It's close. Yeah, yeah, over in Lavington. It's close. Yeah, it's a good yeah, spot. Yeah. It's a good spot. They deliver too, so. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> they have, there's a concert in town. Okay. Do not put up that flag. I'm watching you. Same town, same day, same time. Whose are you attending? Bernabor or Salty Soul? Yeah, I would kind of go to Burner too, actually. Like we know we all go to Burner. <laughs> we love you, Salty Soul. Hashtag yes, last yes. Uh, last uh, uh, round. What's it? What are they on there? Like on the last tour, right? We love Salty Soul, but yes, Burner is Burner. Okay, so two two, <laughs> fine. Which nation has the most beautiful and diverse landscape? Oh, landscape. I feel like I can't answer this honest. No, honestly, because I've actually explored more around Kenya. This is embarrassing, okay. but I've explored Kenya more. I've seen more of Kenya than I've seen Nigeria. Okay. I think that when I'm in Nigeria, I'm going to the village. I'm in Lagos and I go to go see my grandparents in the village. So I haven't really explored Nigeria. Sure. So I don't feel like I have enough. Okay, There's so not enough data. I'll just put it into Kenya column then. That's really? three to that two. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> your podcast, your game. There's not That's enough data. There's not enough data. <laughs> okay. Dr. Kola has now entered the chat. Okay. <laughs> Afternoon treat. Puff puff or mandazi? Hmm. Anyone here had puff puff? Yes, yes. I see some strong hands so, going up. Okay, this is they're the same thing. Ooh, I hear some. Mumbling. They're both flour-based puff things that are fried. I said that. Okay, that's they're the true. Same. Okay, they're they are they're different but shapes. I, but this is a show and a game, so you have to pick one. Okay, I'm only doing this because Mandazi often comes with chai. Okay. And I appreciate, I appreciate <laughs> Don't the try chai. and explain it to your cousins. She said what she said, which is Kenya. And you were taking a Mandazi over a puff puff. So three to two, Kenya. All right, we're still in the game here. I feel like this is a setup. Becky wrote this question, so I'm just going to ask it anyways. Who produces better movies, Nollywood or Riverwood? I did not even know there's a Riverwood, to be quite honest. <laughs> I actually didn't either. So apparently River Road in Nairobi honest. is where the movies come from. So, okay. So Nollywood, fine. I think that's fair. Three, three, we're tied up. Oh my gosh. I'm going to have to pick up selectively from here. It's a traditional themed event and you can only rep one country. Are you wearing Ankara or Maasai attire? 
What am I wearing now? Okay, true, true. Okay, fine. And she looks beautiful, so we cannot be <laughs> mad at her for that. Four to three. Okay, fine. You're lost in New York City, as if you would. Let me change it. You're lost in <laughs> Mumbai. Okay. And you need directions. Are you asking a Kenyan or a Nigerian? I'm more likely to encounter a Nigerian anywhere, so. <laughs> That's true. We everywhere. That's true. You just guys are show up everywhere. It's so true. You, we cannot. Oh, it's so true. That's fair. That's a database question as well. Who's friendlier and more welcoming? Kenyans or Nigerians? Yes, thank yeah, you. I think we're tied back up now. Three to three? Yeah. Are we three, three? Four. Three, four? Thank you for Orungu, come on, honestly. man. You're... Thank you. Guys, read, read the fine date, uh, fine print. Okay. Whose culture is funnier? Who, okay, let me put it this way. Who in the group chat is having the most fun? The Nigerians, yeah, I think so. I think so. As, We're as just you. saucier. You are saucier. Kenyans are so polite. I know. Which is nice, but. I was even trying to think of some jokes to make about you because I knew you. She told me her love language is shade. <laughs> so I was like, let me think of some good jokes. I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. So, okay. So for now, are we four, three? Four? No. Five. Five, five three. three. Okay, Dog we have two up. more questions. Okay. Who is the master of the African auntie side eye? Kenya or Nigeria? Is that Nigeria? Yes. <laughs> Even she's side-eyeing me now. <laughs> Multi-talented lady. Okay, so this, this last question is worth 100 points. <laughs> it's rigged. Yeah, this is the last question. Which country has the best live podcast events? Hey! hey. <laughs> oh, that was fun. So it looks like Kenya wins, but we, get to, we win because we have Ijeoma with us today. So, Ijeoma, the last thing we always ask all of our guests, because we like to find the through line between everyone, whether they are a parent, whether they're a teacher, whether they're an influencer, an academic, we ask the same two questions of every guest at the end of our show. What's your favorite drink? Hmm. She's such an academic. She's like <laughs> keeping real thought to this. <laughs> My favorite drink <laughs> is ginger beer. Ginger beer, that is a surprising <laughs> answer. So not Tangaweezy, you want the little bit of boozy in there. Okay. No, 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 ginger beer is, is not alcoholic. Oh, see, I yeah. knew that. But it's not. <laughs> I knew that. <laughs> so Stony. Tangaweezy, no, but, but, but ginger really, beer. Uh, it's uh, not really the same. Okay, ginger, ginger beer. beer. But ginger yeah. beer, okay. You like it to get up your nose and yeah. make you sneeze. Yeah, I don't okay. really... This is so funny because I actually don't really know why, but That's I was just like, what? If someone was like, oh, what do you want to drink? And I'm at home. That was my center. Yeah. Um, yeah, ginger, ginger beer. beer. Okay. Yeah. And finally, we're all about joy and justice here yes. at Salam and Hello. So what is bringing you joy lately? My daughter is bringing me joy lately. It's like a cop out answer, but she's so cute. Oh, she's so cute. She's <laughs> um, so cute. yeah, I have a five-month-old daughter and she's just, you know, just watching her grow and explore and laugh at her brother and smile <laughs> at us. That is bringing me a lot of joy. It's a, it's a as someone who um, is the only girl in my family, has always wanted a sister, really cares about women, it, to be able to be raising a young black girl. Mm. It's an honor. Black girl magic. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. Ijeoma, this has been such a privilege and a delight. You are just one page, chapter after another. It's just so rich talking to you every time. But thank you so much for being with us. Nairobi Asante Nisana for being with us as well. Um, you know where to find us at Salam and Hello. 
unfollow everybody else for your mental health <laughs> and just follow us so you can stay in step with all that we have coming up in the next couple of weeks. But we'd love to hear from you what you loved about the conversation, questions that remain for you. You know where to find us at Salam and Hello. You can also email me, lily at salamandhello.com. And don't miss next week's episode. Until then, peace. I know it's hard, but baby, you just got to grow up.